Father, we thank you for gathering us as a people here this morning. We pray that now as we turn our attention to you speaking, you speaking through the words of Scripture, Lord, help us to understand what you are saying. And Lord, help us to not merely understand, but to live it out. Lord, guard us from being calcified to truth. Help us to know these things are real. Lord Jesus, you're coming again. Help us to be prepared. Help us to walk now in a wise way. We know we cannot do it on our own strength. We know we must depend utterly on the power of you, Holy Spirit, working in amongst your people. Lord, equip us this morning through your word. Help us, change us, we would ask in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Um, and we will be reading Matthew 25, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Matthew 25, and I'm actually going to pick up at verse 13, Matthew 25, verse 13, and I'll read through, through verse 30. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and hesitant servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I could have, should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. You may be seated. We are nearing the end of Jesus' teaching of uh, his coming and looking forward to uh, his coming again. You remember this whole series of teachings started in back in chapter 24, verse 3. The disciples ask, when, uh, when are these things going to happen? The destruction of the temple, uh, you coming, uh, and what's the sign of all of these things? Jesus addressed the sign in the first part of 
the discourse, chapter 24 through verse 35. And then since verse 36 in chapter 24, he's been addressing the second part of that, when. And essentially his answer to when is no one knows, but it's not as if that's the full answer. Jesus has, uh, because no one knows, here's how you live. Here's how you live. And so really, uh, we've had kind of the same big idea for the last couple weeks because it's, it's Jesus laying out, it's Jesus laying out in this whole section leading up through today, what does it look like? If you don't know the day or the hour of Christ coming back, what do you do? How do you live? And Jesus has been laying that out in a sequence, in a series of episodes, of pictures, of comparisons. The big idea of this whole section has been stay faithful because the time of your master's arrival is unknown. You don't know when your master is coming again. You have no idea. But the call is to say, stay faithful. And so we've seen different manifestations of that. In chapter 24, verses 36 through 42, talking about and comparing the situation to Noah's generation, you don't know the time of your master's arrival, so keep awake to escape sweeping judgment. If you're asleep, if you live like everyone else, then you will find on that day you will be swept away in judgment. Or as in verse 43 and 44 of chapter 24, the imagery of a thief coming in the night, if, if your life is invested here, if all your precious possessions are invested here, then it's going to be like Jesus coming and it's going to be coming like a thief, stealing away what you consider to be life. And so you need to keep prepared to guard against your life being stolen away. But then there's more of a question, okay, we need to keep prepared, we need to keep watch. What do you do? And that'll be addressed today, but it was also addressed in chapter 24, verses 45 through 51, keep nourishing fellow disciples for future blessing. And then finally, last week, we looked at the parable of the ten virgins, and we looked at it there, and Jesus' argument is that you need to keep wisely prepared during the long delay of your master. Pursue righteousness, pursue good deeds, dependent on, and because you love Jesus, dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to produce that righteousness in your life, but you need to be prepared. If you are not prepared, you will be left outside in the outer darkness. And finally today, we get kind of the last installment of a comparison, a picture of, okay, what do you do if you don't know the day or the hour of Christ's return? Here's the main question that could kind of frame where Jesus is going to go today, and it's this. What's the best investment of resources while waiting for Jesus to return? What is the best investment of resources while waiting for Jesus to return. And when we talk about resources, we understand that. Uh, we understand investing. We understand, okay, I have a chunk of money, I'm gonna invest it here to hopefully get some return. Or I have got some time, and I can either spend my time this way or that way, I'm gonna invest it here so that I get a return. Really, that is the question that's driving this particular section that Jesus is gonna talk about, this particular parable. And the main idea for the parable is this, keep diligent for your good master. Keep diligent for your good master. Like we did last week, whenever we encounter a parable, we want to walk through first the imagery of the parable, because these, 
These vignettes, these scenes would have been common, relatable to the people in their own day. So what we're going to do is exactly what we did last week. We're going to walk through the imagery. We're going to walk through the story. We're going to have a grasp on that. And then from that, we're able to draw the comparison and the lesson that Jesus is wanting us to do. So let's go ahead and take a look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 14. For, now no, don't pass over the little word for, because that's a conjunction, and that tells us that what Jesus is about to say is connected with actually verse 13. Verse 13 was the end of last week's parable, which was this, watch therefore, or another way to say that, be prepared, for you know neither the day or the hour. Now, that has been the call in this whole section. He's said it a couple times, watch therefore, because you don't know the day or the hour. That's the main theme. And so Jesus has given a picture of that in the parable of the, the, the ten virgins. Now he's going to amplify it again. He's amplifying the same theme when we come to the parable of the talents. Four, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his slaves and entrusted to them his property. Okay, we were to understand uh, what we find is this gentleman is loaded. That's the technical term. He's got a lot of money got a lot of resources, a lot of possessions. He has a household of slaves, okay? They are bound to the master and bound to do the master's bidding. So he calls them and he entrusts uh, possessions, his possessions to three of them, or at least three of them are highlighted right here. What does he do? Verse 15, to one he gave five talents. Now let's pause for a second and understand what a talent is. Um, this is not like a talent show kind of talent. Um, or like, you know, Tony's good on the drums kind of talent. That's not this kind of talent, okay? In fact, actually, we've encountered um, talents elsewhere in the book of Matthew. A talent is a unit of money, a unit of money, a large unit of money. Uh, you remember the parable of the unforgiving slave in Matthew 18? Uh, he has uh, he he uh, racks up a debt of 10,000 talents. It's unimaginable. Now, let's just remind ourselves what a talent is, because that's going to help us understand the story a little bit better, okay? One talent was about equivalent to 6,000 denarii. 6,000 denarii, uh, a denarius was about a day's wage. So one talent is 6,000 days wages, okay? So if you work that out, that's about 19 and a quarter years wages. Or if you need some dollar figures to go with that, let's assume, let's be conservative, Let's assume that you earn $15 an hour, and let's assume uh, that their workday was 72 hours a week, six days, 12 hours a day. It seems like the, that's what they're working. So if you work all that out, one talent would amount to $1,080,000, or you could just say about a million dollars. That's a number we can kind of get our heads wrapped around. So then five talents is 96 years wages, or about $5.4 million. $5 million. Uh, two talents is 38.5 years wages, or about $2.16 million. Large sums of money, okay? This guy is, like I said, he's loaded. He's got a lot of wealth, and he's going on a journey, not important where, but he divvies up his possessions, large amounts of possessions, to his slaves, those who are bound to him, those who are bound to his household. Now, he divvies them up, notice... Uh, to each according to his ability. So the master knows his slaves. He knows what they're capable of. Um, and he gives an allot according to that. So one he gives five, one he gives two, one he gives one. Right? Then he goes away, departs. Now notice what happens. Verse 16. 
he who had received the five talents went out at, went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. Now, uh, it may not seem like a big deal in, in, um, in your Bibles, but that little phrase, at once, literally this, this clause starts with the idea of immediately. And that's important. This fellow, he just got the five talents, right? This massive amount of money. And he goes immediately and he starts, uh, he starts trading. He starts trading. He starts making investments, um, get, selling stuff, and he makes five talents more, which is good. That's 100% uh, profit. It's 100% profit. Verse 17, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Now we're to understand that he also immediately, the one who had the two talents or was entrusted with the two talents, he immediately leaves and starts trading. And he also has 100% profit. But what happens with the one who had one? But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, if you think that that's just foolish, actually that was a common practice in that day. The banking industry as we know it was not uh, well developed um, at that time. So the question is, well, you know, how do you safeguard money? Well, it was a common practice to dig in the ground and hide money. You even see this in the parables in Matthew 13. You remember the guy finds a treasure hidden in a field, and then what does he do? He buries it and then goes away and comes back. Now, it's a different imagery there, but it's the same principle that if you want to safeguard some money, it's not an unreasonable thing to do at this time to actually dig in the ground, bury it, uh, to safeguard it. So that's what this one who has the one talent does. A large amount of money, and he buries it in the ground. Verse 19, what happens? Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So the idea is he's in, these are his slaves. They're bound to him. But this is a, an issue of stewardship. He's entrusted to each one of them a certain amount of money, a large amount of money, and um, he expects them to do business with it, to, to aim at his uh, best as the master. And so he's going to settle accounts. He's going to settle accounts. What happens? Verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me, or you entrusted to me, you handed over to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, a few things to notice. Mas the master uh, expected this sort of behavior from his slaves. Uh, he, he, uh, this slave in particular has done a good job of managing things. He's called a good and faithful slave with what was entrusted to him. But you also see this, right? You see this in the kind of the attitude of this slave that had the five talents. He, he's effectively excited to say, hey, look, look what I made for you. Look what I made for you. Look what I, I did my business. I was faithful. Look what I made for you. Now, this highlights a key reality that we need to keep in mind. This is a slave and a master. This is a slave and a master. The slave is inherently bound to a master, a good master in this case. And the idea is, is that the good of the master uh, is also the good of his slaves. They are bound together. 
They are bound together. So we see that kind of attitude showing up where the one who brings in the five talents more, he's excited about it. And even in the master's response, well done, uh, I'm going to entrust you more. And that's a good thing. That brings status, elevated status in the master's household. It brings um, the idea of, um, um, like I said, if the master succeeds, then the slaves succeed, right? It's part of a whole household. If the whole household succeeds, if the master's household succeeds, the slaves are better off. So they're intimately bound together. And we even see it like this, right? The, the master says, enter into the joy of your master. It's a good thing. He sees it as a good thing. Like there's some sort of celebration. There's some sort of picture of joy of the master. And he's saying, you did a good job. Enter in, enjoy that. So they're bound together. The master and the slave, their joy, their success are bound together. Now that's the first slave, the one that was entrusted five talents. Now let's look at the one who had two. Verse 22, he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verbatim, repetition. Uh, same rate of return, same, um, same, same celebration. Again, the slave is bound to the master. The success of the master is the success of the slave. And he gets to share in the joy of the master. We see that with that promise there. But now what about the one with the one talent? Verse 24. He also would receive the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. That's a good way to talk to your boss, right? I knew you to be a hard man. Now, what does he mean by that? Okay, he's a hard man. What do you mean, slave? What, what do you, what's he getting at? Well, he explains in what way he views the master as a hard man in the following participles. Notice what he says. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like for the master to be a hard man? Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Now let's think about that for a second. What is the slave saying? Saying the heart, you being a hard man, a harsh master, it is seen in that you expect, uh, you expect where you didn't do any um, sowing, you get a harvest. Where you didn't do any scattering, you get some reaping. So what is the slave thinking? He's thinking, well, gee whiz, if I go out and I do business with my talent, I put in the effort, I put in the work, uh, then that's my work. And really the benefits or the profit that comes from investing in that capital should belong to me. That's his logic. And so he says, well, if it rightly belongs to me, because I worked for it, um, then my master coming back and, you know, taking that profit well, that, that's just harsh. That's wrong. It's stealing. It's not representative of my work. That's his mentality. That's the slave's mentality. Now, right here, we should remember, who is this guy? He's a slave. Means what? He's intimately connected and bound to the master. 
The first two slaves, we saw this. They, they had that mentality. The master's success is our success. The success of the household is our success. The joy of our master is our joy. But this guy has a sort of independency to him, doesn't he? It's like, well, I, I want, you know, I put in the work. I should get the rewards. I should get the rewards. He's kind of thinking independently of the master. But what else does he say? What else does he say? Verse 25, what does this lead him to do? So I was afraid. And what is he afraid of? Let's think about that for a minute. What is he afraid of? Is he, he's, af- he's afraid. I don't think he's afraid of the master so much because he's pretty brazen, right? You're a hard man. Okay. Um, what is he afraid of? Well, he's already kind of articulated it, right? If I do the labor, if I do the effort, if I do the investment, if I do the trading, I take the risks, I do all the effort, I'm afraid of getting nothing out of it. Or maybe another way to think about it, anytime you do investment, you have a certain amount of money, you're going to invest or do some trading, there is always risk. There's always risk. And we saw the first two sleeves, they took a risk. Now, we didn't see, you know, what they did as far as trading. We, we don't know, right? And they ended up with 100% profit, which is good, right? That's great. But there's always an element of risk. So if this slave thinks, well, okay, I'm going to outlay one talent, and I'm going to try to trade here and there and everywhere, and, but what if I lose? What if I lose, right? So what if I end up with half a talent at the end of the day? What happens if I end up with half a talent? What's this harsh master that I have going to do? Well, because he scatters, or he, he, you know, he harvests where he didn't do any work, he harvests where he didn't reap, he's going to take it out of my hide. He's going to have me make up the difference. So what's the best option then, according to this slave? And there's a certain logic to it. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. And again, that's not an unreasonable thing to do. If your goal is just to safeguard something, right? I put it in the safety deposit box. That's kind of the idea, right? He, he went and dug in the ground. He found a space paid for it. And evidently, it stayed safe. He's able to bring the one talent back. And what does he say? Highlights his attitude again. Here, you have what's yours, which is true. The master's talent, it's not the slave's talent. The slave recognizes that. The initial capital belongs to the master. And I'll give you your initial capital back. Remember, what is his attitude? Any profit that I do from my working on it rightfully belongs to me. He is, again, we see that attitude. He has is, he is separated himself from the master. He's thinking independently of the master. He's thinking about his own benefit. I mean, think about it like this. He goes, he, it takes some effort, right? He has to find a spot to dig some money in the ground, and he hides it in the ground. So he had to take that effort to do that. But what's he doing with the rest of his time? Don't know. Text doesn't say, but evidently not doing, uh, evidently seeking his own concerns of some stripe or another. So in a sense, there's a certain logic to what the one talent slave has. Here you have what is yours. You gave it to me to entrust. I've guarded it. Here's yours. We're good. Verse 26. But his master answered him, you wicked and hesitant slave. Now, the word there uh, might be translated lazy or slothful. 
it's really the idea of hesitant, which can connect with being lazy. Um, but remember what happened with the first two slaves. What did they do? Immediately go out and start doing business. Immediately, I'm investing here, I'm investing there, I'm trying to get a return for my master. It's more the idea of hesitant, you wicked and uh, hesitant slave. Hesitant to do what? Hesitant to invest for the sake of the master. Hesitant to take the effort to do so. It's less about laziness and more about his attitude towards the master. And then he calls him on it. The master calls him on his logic. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. So he's like, let's just assume that what you said is true. Let's assume that I'm that kind of guy, that I'm harsh in that sort of way, that I am as you portray me. Your logic is flawed, slave, because this is what you should have done. Verse 27, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers or literally the money changers. Remember, uh, we talked about when Jesus entered the table and he flips over the tables of the money changers. We said that there's this, um, uh, it's probably less about banking and more the idea of currency exchange. And when you do currency exchange, you get a, you know, a surcharge for exchanging currency. That's probably the idea here. But what is he saying? He's saying, that, uh, you should have thrown my money to the money changers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Now, the master evidently sees that this money-changing business is a fairly sure bet, right? So if you, it's like us, if, if you want a sure bet with your investment, you take a million dollars, you invest it in a CD, you know, there's a certain term to the CD, and you get it back. It's a sure bet. You know, it's not a very aggressive investment, but it's a sure bet. That's how the master perceives this. Like, hey, if you just put the money with the money-changers, that'd been fine. Now, let's think about this a little bit, a minute. Like, how does this, how does this work? Well, think about it. the slave had to take some effort, didn't he, to dig into the ground and to put the master's money there. It took some effort to do that, uh, the least amount of effort, right? But if he, if he gives it, if he took the same amount of effort, the same amount of time and ingenuity that it took him to bury the money in the ground, if he would have just, you know, walked over to the money changer and say, hey, here's, here's a one talent, a million bucks, right, in our day, um, just take that, um, you know, use that to back your enterprise and just give me whatever's left over. Uh, that's probably even less effort. And he's passive in it. The, the, the one talent slave is passive either way. He's passive if he buries it in the ground. He's passive if he just hands it off to someone else to deal with. And he would have gotten more money for the master. And so the master says, your old attitude even if you would accept it, even if I was who you say I am, then you had a better course of action. So what is the master going to do? Verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. Now that's interesting. One, because uh, what does he say? He says the first slave, the one who had five talents and made five talents more, now he has 10 well, what did the wicked slave say? The wicked slave essentially said, oh yeah, if we make any profit, it's not coming back to us. But what does the master say here? The 10 talents rests with, with the first one. So he already shows that he's not the harsh master that the, first, the, the, the one talent slave thought. 
And now he's going to have 11 with this guy's added talent. What's the principle? For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Well, what's the idea? That the first two slaves, they had profit. They showed faithfulness. And so they're going to be given more responsibility. Uh, That's the smart thing to do. It's like, well, these guys have been faithful. Let me go ahead and give it to them to continue to invest and to continue to further my interest because they've already done it well. But the one who has not, the third slave, didn't invest anything, didn't have a profit to show for it. Even what he has, his initial capital, will be taken away because he wasn't faithful. He was hesitant. He was independent of the master. He's thinking, well, I'm the owner, right? Like, if I put any effort in it, I should get the, I should get the reward. So, but the master's going to take it away and give it to the one who has shown that he is able to invest and seek the master's interests well. But it's not only that. Look at verse 30. And cast the worthless slave. So, now he describes him as worthless because he didn't pursue the master's interests. He didn't, he was hesitant. He didn't take any risk for the good of his master. And this guy, this slave, as we already said, he's not really thinking as a slave. He's thinking as an owner. He's thinking independent of the master. He's thinking independent of the household. Well, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy because what happens in verse 30, and cast the worthless slave into the outer darkness In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we understand that Jesus is kind of shifting from the real world language to the the situation language to now talking about spiritual realities. But at the very least, we can say this. What is the master doing? He's throwing him out of his household. Because this slave really doesn't want to be a part of the master's household. He thinks of himself as independent. And so he's thrown out. That's the imagery of the story. What what is Jesus' point? Well, remember, the overall context is the return of the Son of Man. So we we can draw some connections pretty quickly. The Master's departure. Jesus has been very clear leading up to this point in Matthew that he's departing. He's going to be killed. He's going to be raised, uh, but as we will see, and as the audience of Matthew, the original audience would know, Jesus died, he rose again, and he ascended. He went away. That's how the original audience would understand it. The master's departure, we could equate or correlate with Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. The master's return after a long time, that's the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, what the master says to the first two slaves, enter into the joy of your master. That entering language has been a key motif in Matthew. What is it? Entering into the kingdom. The idea is the master comes back. There's some sort of celebration, at least in the picture. And we're to understand that's what's going to happen. When Jesus comes back, he's going to establish his kingdom and his slaves, his disciples, are going to experience and enjoy that with him. Last time it, in the parable of the ten virgins, it was the wedding feast, that, that joyful occasion and feast. Here it's more abbreviated, just enter into the joy of your master. We can do a little bit more. 
as with the last parable, the two good and faithful slaves are true disciples. Whatever behavior they exhibited, that's, that's the behavior of true disciples. The wicked, hesitant, and worthless slave is a false disciple. Matthew's been doing this. Jesus has been doing this in the course of Matthew. There are those who profess to be disciples. Remember, he's, Jesus is teaching his disciples with this, right? The crowds aren't nearby, at least not that we're to understand. He's telling this to his disciples, but there's this reality that the visible disciples, there could be those who profess Jesus to be Lord, Master, but some of those are true disciples and some of those are false disciples. The wicked, hesitant, and worthless slave, there's a professing disciple, professing having connection with the Master, but he's actually a false, a worthless disciple. Now, so far, so good. That's pretty easy, and everyone that interprets this parable basically ends up in the same spot. Here's where it gets harder. What are the talents? And what is Jesus expecting? Well, again, the whole context of Matthew helps us out. Let's frame the question like this. What result does Jesus expect from his disciples when he returns? What result does Jesus expect from his disciples when he returns? And the answer from Matthew is pretty clear. He expects more disciples. Matthew 4, when Jesus initially calls, when Jesus initially calls, uh, you know, Peter and James and John, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of people, meaning what? You're now fish, or you're fishermen now, and you're going, to, you're going to go catch people. With what? With the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. We can even do more. Uh, go to the end of Matthew. We keep coming back here because, in a sense, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, there's a lot of themes that are resolving or connecting in the Great Commission. But here we go, right? Here's, here's a very rich master entrusting something to his slaves. Look at Matthew 18. Um, Matthew, let's go ahead and read 28, 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, that's the essence of being loaded, right? That's Jesus. He, he has authority over everything. What does he tell them to do? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The end of the age is when Jesus comes back. So what, is, what result does Jesus expect from his disciples when he returns? He expects disciples, more disciples. So you're a disciple, but your job is to make more disciples for the good of your master, for your joy, because your joy is the same as the joy of your master. Well, okay, can we hone in on the imagery a little bit more? Maybe. Uh, what is entrusted to Jesus' disciples? He even says it there in Matthew 28, 18, teaching teaching all that Jesus has commanded. 
uh, Christianity is a word-based religion because we understand that God creates through his word. He did it at the beginning. Let there be light, and there was light. And in the New Testament, it is very clear. Jesus is called the word, and Jesus' teaching, the truth, the scriptures, that is deposited to each and every disciple who becomes a disciple. You heard the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. You repented and placed your faith in Jesus. You were bound to him by faith. And you are learning as a disciple. You're learning what Jesus taught. And you're also learning how to obey what he taught. Well, one of the things he taught and you're called to obey is the Great Commission itself. It's a multiplicative effect. I think that's what the talents represent in the parable. If you are a disciple, you have been entrusted with the gospel. You've been entrusted with the teaching of Jesus. And your master expects you to make that, invest that, do business with that to make more disciples. Now, you're like, well, wait a minute. He initially, in the parable, the master initially trusts according to ability. Aren't we all supposed to make disciples? Oh, indeed we are. But we don't all have the same ability and opportunity to make disciples. Some of us have a, all, if you're a true disciple, you've got to have a grasp on the gospel. If you don't know what the gospel is, you're probably not a true believer. So that's what you got to embrace. Jesus as your Lord. But not all of us are in the, you know, not all of us have the same grasp on Jesus' teaching. Not all of us have the same opportunities to share the gospel. We all are called to it. Doesn't mean we all have the same ability or opportunity with those around us. But we are all called to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples with whatever our ability and our opportunity is. Well, you're like, well, what, what about the burying guy, right? Like, what is this? If that's the case, what, what's this deal with the guy burying it? Well, what did he give back to the master? Give back exactly what was given to him, which means what? You could be a disciple and say, great, I made it. I'm saved from God's wrath. I'm going to enjoy heaven forever. I'm going to sit back and just play it cool. I'm going to work on my own walk with Jesus. And I'm just going to work on that until he comes back. That's like the wicked slave. Because you're not seeking to extend the master's. You know, you can think about it like this. As a Christian, you're like, great, I'm saved. Uh, what does it matter if anyone else is saved? I'm in. Like, you could have that attitude, couldn't you? But when you have that attitude, you're thinking of yourself as independent from the master. You're thinking of your own interests rather than the reality that the master's interests are your interests. The master's joy is your joy. Uh, think of, you know, the scenes that you see in Revelation uh, where pictures that John has, uh, visions of uh, people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation that has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And John is joyful. The saints are joyful in that because what? It's 
the joy of the master and it's the joy of his people because if you belong to Christ, if you are a genuine disciple, you are bound. You are bound to the master like a slave to a good master. The application then should become pretty clear. Do you grasp that being a disciple of Jesus means that you belong to Jesus, bound to Jesus, lock, stock, and barrel, every minute of your life, every capacity that you have, you belong to Jesus. His aims are your aims. His success is your success. His joy is your joy. There is no independence of you from Jesus if you are a disciple. Do you segment your life and resource sources thinking that some parts are for you and some parts are for God? This money's for God, this money's for me. This time's for God, this time's for me. You're thinking like the wicked slave. You're thinking as an owner. You're thinking as one divorced from the master. When you believe that you have life independent from Jesus, you'll start thinking, like we just said, like the wicked slave. You'll, you'll start guarding your own work and benefit. Well, what do I get out of it? And you'll start, to, you'll start viewing Jesus as a hard master rather than the good master that he is. You see, none of us was designed to live for ourselves. God designed humanity to find our joy, to find our satisfaction in delighting in God, in the, God's interests being our interests, God extending his rule over the world with our joy. But what is, what happened in the garden is man and woman stepping out saying, yeah, rather than being a slave, I'd like to be the owner, please. I'd like to be my own independent ruler, please. And so that's what man and woman have done. They, we have each one of us, apart from Christ, pursued being the owner, pursued being masters. And where does it leave us? Empty, meaningless, worthless lives. Oh, you can die with the most toys, most wealth. But the, you know those people. You hear celebrities all the time talking, who seem to have it all, and they're empty because they're not living according to their design. We were designed, just like the parable talks about, as people to be bound to God, bound to Jesus. And that's what Jesus offers. He says, repent, lay down arms, turn your allegiance from sin and self. It feels like death, because we think our life is, is about our own independence, but it, we lay down arms, we surrender, we entrust ourselves to Jesus who alone can pay for our rebellion against a holy God. And he shows us what true life really is. Jesus is a good and generous master who entrusts his people with his business. Isn't that amazing that Jesus not only saves people, but then says, all right, uh, you've got a job now, and let me give you uh, like a, a really uh, a huge amount of resources a hugely valuable treasure. Let me give that to you. And why don't you go advance my business? Isn't that amazing? That Jesus not only saves a people, but then invests them. Uh, he gives them resources to do his business. And then he rewards them and gives them a share in his own joy. Isn't that amazing? 
Are you joyful about the business of Jesus looking forward to the settling of accounts? You see, if you're living like this, you're living faithfully, we know that there's risks. We know there's not always, uh, we, we, we don't always walk the way we should. But we know if we're seeking the interests of our master, there's going to be great joy at the settling of accounts when he comes back. What are you doing with the teaching of Jesus that has been entrusted to you? What are you doing with the discipling opportunities he has given to you? Do you have a maintenance mindset like the hesitant slave? I'm just trying to make it to the end. Never mind anyone else. Are you burying Jesus' teaching within you, or are you using it to make disciples? Heed Jesus' warning about the worthless slave. You could know a lot of facts about Jesus. You could know a lot of teaching about Jesus. You could know your Bible backwards and forwards, and you could all have it terminate on yourself. And Jesus is going to throw you in the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing teeth. That's what Jesus says, because you're not investing it. You're not investing his teaching to others so that they might follow him. Are you making, are you taking faithful risks, faithful risks to make disciples? We already said, every investment, there's a risk. Risk for the gospel is right. We don't believe in safe Christianity. Risk for the gospel is right. Well, what risks do we take? Oh, we feel them when we talk, talk about or think about sharing the gospel with neighbors, family, coworkers. How's this conversation going to go? Should I launch into this? Should I not? Take the risk because the interests of your master are your interests. Or, uh, well, uh, you know, I don't know if I know enough to help someone else, a uh, fellow disciple in my local church. I don't know if I know enough. Take the risk. Learn. Do what it takes. Teaching others in the local church about how to follow Jesus. It doesn't just end with conversions. It, the whole life of a Christian is about disciple-making. Or to go back to a parable a couple weeks ago, nourishing our fellow disciples. With what? With the truth, with the gospel, helping them to follow Jesus better. New Testament often portrays it like older people because they've been down the road a bit and following Jesus, seeking out younger people, younger people seeking out the wisdom of the older, discussing the Bible together, making your conversations about Jesus and following Jesus. Confessing sin to one another, that feels risky, doesn't it? When I'm sitting one-on-one -on -one or even in a group uh, and saying, I'm struggling with this sin as a Christian, that feels really risky. But what are you doing? You're seeking to be holy, the interests of your master. You're taking a risk. You're praying for one another. You're confronting one another. Have you ever confronted someone? That's not fun, but Jesus calls it to it. It's a risk. Why? Because you care about you care about a fellow disciple following Jesus. You care about them not being on a road to hell. You care about the purity of Jesus' church. Are you serving in the local church? All service, all we do is ultimately geared towards making disciples. Everything that we ought to be doing as a church ought to be ultimately geared at making disciples. Are you serving in the local church, seeking the interests of your master? Are you using your resources, your finances, your time, etc., aiming at making disciples? Here's how you tell. Look at your calendar and look at your bank statement. 
does it reflect that your aim is to further your master, to make disciples? A life, that ref- a life that's aimed at risk-taking faithfulness in making disciples of Jesus. We can broaden this out not only to individuals, but as a corporate body. We are a church. We have a budget each year. We have resources. We have a building. We have a field. We have all of these things. Are we using these resources and opportunities and risk-taking obedience, risk-taking faithfulness for the cause of our master? If you understand this, it brings a great deal of freedom and joy. It's like, yes, we can't lose. We invest our resources, we invest our time, but we're investing it for what lasts people, souls. That's what we aim at. Because that's the interest of our master. That's the joy of our master, which means it's, if we're his, that's our interest and that's our joy. Stay faithful because the time of your master's arrival is unknown. So what do you do? This parable has showed us we keep diligent, taking risk, risk-taking faithfulness for our good master. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are at the right hand of the Father at this minute. You see exactly what's going on in this church and in all of your churches. Lord, you've entrusted to us wealth, a wealth of truth, starting with the gospel and then all of your scriptures and all the teaching that you have passed down through your people. You've called us to work Each of us has a job, and as a church, we have a job. Lord, help us to further your interests. Let us not think independently of you. But may we see that we are so bound to you that your interests are our interests. Your joy is our joy. And help us to be faithful with what you have given. Lord, forgive us where we have been hesitant lazy, apathetic. Lord, help us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to know what that looks like. Help us to be creative for the sake of your name and for the sake of your glory, we would ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me for a benediction. This is adapted from Acts 20, 24. May we not account our lives of any value, nor as precious to ourselves, If only we may finish our course in the ministry that we have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Church, you are sent.